Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's been a good deal of controversy about the upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games and whether it is safe to hold them despite the risks presented by the coronavirus. If it is unsafe to hold them, why are they going forward? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games with John Gleaves, professor of kinesiology and co-director of the Center for Sociocultural Sport and Olympic Research at California State University Fullerton, which I've always known as Cal State Fullerton, but either way, it's the same place. He's also associate editor of the Journal of Olympic Studies, and his research focuses on the cultural, social, historical, and ethical dimensions of international sport. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, John Gleaves. My pleasure. Great to have you. So let's launch right in. Um, you know, Japan has been a difficult and complicated case with regard to its handling of the coronavirus. Uh, and this has obviously raised lots of questions about, you know, whether it's feasible and safe to be running the Olympic Games in Tokyo, which have already been, you know, postponed for a year. How are the conditions for the Olympics as far as you're concerned in, in terms of the vi- virus? And can the Games be held safely? Well, let me, of course, preface, I'm not a medical expert. Um, So I'm going off of the research that I've done looking at public health. There's two real important components here to to the question about can the games be held safely and what's happening in Japan. There's first, there's the issue of the virus on the ground in Japan. Japan's had a slower than expected rollout of their vaccine rates. And that's created a lot of anxiety among the public about this becoming a super spreader event. But we know the Olympic Games is an international sporting event. We have athletes from every continent coming together. So the issue for the coronavirus and the Olympic Games is going to be inherently what's the coronavirus doing globally? Because even if Japan is having um, its own issues, what's happening in Uganda is just as relevant as what's happening in the United States because we will have athletes from around the world coming into 
the Olympic Village competing together in these events. So for that reason, a lot of the current concerns around the Delta variation of the, the coronavirus are as relevant for the Olympic Games as they are for any other public health issue that we see right now. Uh, so there's very big concerns. Now, there has been partnerships with uh, making vaccinations available uh, to athletes globally, um, but that's not going to ensure that we have a 100% vaccination among every single person in the Olympic Village and the journalists. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's, there's quite a bit of complication, both what's happening in Japan itself, but then also with the International Olympic athletes as they come into the Olympic village. So these, these are going to be two, um, two competing issues, if you will. So, I mean, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the role of money in, in an event this size and in the construction of the stadia and, and other facilities that are necessary to house and, and accommodate all these people. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, how you think the role of money is playing out in this particular Olympic Games, because a lot of people, I think, think that's really driving things. And it's, you know, it's even at the cost of putting athletes and other people at risk. Yeah, money is huge. And, it, and there's several dimensions to which the financial implications are probably weighing in on the decisions that are being made. Tokyo, as an organizer, has you know an estimated uh, ten million dollar budget. Sorry, ten billion dollar budget that's been spent on organizing the, the games themselves that they need to recoup by by hosting it. Now, um, there's a possibility of insurance if the games were canceled to mitigate some of those costs, and the IOC mitigating some of those costs. The IOC also has insurance if they're not able to hold the games. Um, but even if insurers were to, for example, financially make both parties whole, there's the knock-on effect. And there's actually a great article by the leading sports economist in the world, Andrew Zimbalist, that um, we published in the Journal of Olympic Studies, looking at not just the immediate financial implications of hosting or not hosting the game, but the future effects. So the changes on insurance premiums going forward uh, will make it very expensive for both the host cities and the IOC to ensure the games. There's also the effect uh, on the relationships with the sponsors. Now, the Olympics has developed the Olympic Partnership uh, Sponsorship Program, which is where we see you know, Johnson & Johnson or, or major companies like McDonald's that are year-round you know, year sponsors of the Olympics um, and this this is a, a very elite level, uh, you know, the, the the diamond level sponsorship. Now, these sponsors have spent a lot of money on sponsorship. If the games were not to go forward, it it, it creates a little bit of tear in that relationship, and it's and, and the IOC is certainly going to be very worried about going forward the messaging that that it sends to its sponsors about this level of participation. If we can't always guarantee an Olympic Games. Um, and so, and from the IOC's perspective, it's not just about what if there's a future pandemic, but it's all of the other ways that the Olympic Games can be interrupted, whether it's a terrorist attack, whether it's a climate-related um, weather event, whether it, it, it's an earthquake. Um, the, these kinds of concerns 
uh, the IOC is very mindful of when it comes to keeping its relationship with its sponsors and that reputation of we can always deliver the games. With the exception of World War One and World War Two, the Olympic Games has always been held. This is the first time it's been delayed by a year, um, but it's very important to the IOC that it can continue that level of reliability if it's going to keep asking its uh top sponsors to stay partners with the, the Olympic brand. So yeah, I mean, yeah, basically money is a so very the, important. Right. So how are the athletes feeling about this? I mean, you know, just as you say, the postponement by one year is itself unique. Um, but, you know, these athletes prepare for a particular, you know, date. And this is only only comes around every four years. And, you know, they spend a lot of their lives getting ready for this event and, you know, to, to cancel it, to postpone it is got to be a big problem for them. On the other hand, they got to be worried about the risks that they're taking by going. So can you give us a sense of how the athletes are, you know, dealing with the situation? Yeah, it seems by and large, uh, most the vast majority of athletes are very eager to see these Olympic games go forward with the exception of a few areas where the visibility and profit are larger outside of the Olympic games, for example, professional basketball or professional tennis for most of the athletes outside of those sports, they want the games to happen. They need the games to happen and they probably don't have another shot at a second games. Their, their windows where they're at their peak are very small and even if it's waiting three years since we've already delayed it a year, the, the likelihood that some of these athletes are going to be in their competitive prime is lower. So for, yeah, for the athletes right now that would be punching a ticket to Tokyo to compete, they want to go and compete. Um, that there, there are some athletes that have expressed ambivalence or not wanting to compete, but most of them are, again, in, in your professional soccer, professional basketball, professional tennis where they have um, more well, more revenue, more fame generated by the other aspects of their sport. Now, there are athletes that have expressed a lot of concern around um, some of the, the protocols that they're going to have to be follow. And there's certainly a lot of anxiety around, you know, for example, what if I test positive the day before my event, but I've already been vaccinated, I don't have any symptoms. I mean, and, and these are going to be issues that are going to be very interesting to play out. But I, I think from an athlete standpoint, you see a lot of willingness to want the games to go, go forward. That's in stark contrast to where the Japanese public is at the moment. Uh, I saw a recent survey that over 80% of the Japanese population do not want to be hosting the games. Um, so these are the, the citizens that are, um, you know, putting out the money to have the games be hosted in Tokyo, not wanting them to be there because of the concerns that the Olympics is going to have on their community. Um, in a lot of ways, the Olympics is like that circus that comes to town and then leaves. But the, the, you're still, if you live there, that's still your town. And so if, if, the, if the Olympics come in, the virus takes off, well, for the citizens in Tokyo and, and the broader community in Japan, there's a lot of concern that um, the circus is going to leave some some something behind that is not desirable. So for as much as the athletes want the games to go forward, there's, there's a lot of unease among the, the Japanese citizens about hosting the games at the moment. 
So we talked a little bit before we started about the political dimensions of the Olympic Games. And maybe, you know, I mean, obviously this plays together with the questions of coronavirus risk, but also the the financial, the monetary, economic kinds of, uh, you know, investments that have been made and the consequences of holding the Games. I mean, I lived in Vancouver until 2005 and sold a house, the value of which was apparently much inflated by an Olympic Games that was happening, you know, I think I've forgotten now, two or four years. 2010, yep, the 2010 Vancouver Games. Years down the road. So obviously this is, you know, not just an athletic event. There's a lot more going on. And I wonder if you could sort of comment on, you know, perhaps particularly the political dimensions of all this. Yes. The the Olympic Games is – you know, a magnifying glass into what's happening in international politics, but also what's happening um, in national politics around the world. The, the Olympics is always a, a re- revealing in it, the way it, it highlights or magnifies what's happening um, internationally, but also what's happening in athletes' home countries. If we can think back to the last Winter Olympics with with Korea and North Korea, um, we saw a lot of the inter-Korean politics playing out in that Olympic Games. Um, we're going to see the, the same way the coronavirus magnified the, the cracks in our societies and the, the cracks in, in our public health. We're going to see the ways in which um, the coronavirus is going to magnify the difference in political resources that, that different countries have. But, but we're also, you know, to, to sort of change gears, we're going to see the um, issues around, you know, human rights, civil rights coming to the fore. Uh, you know, in the last year, we, we've, we've seen the Black Lives Matter protests, in, in the, um, and there are going to be a lot of athletes who will be um, using their, their platform for political statements in, in ways that likely we haven't seen since 1968. I mean, the, the closest example that we can think back to is the famous Black Power salute with Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 68 Olympics. Um, so there's going to be elements of the, the politics with regarding coronavirus, but it's all of these other things that have been, you know, taking up the, the media in the last year, whether it's LGBTQ rights, whether it, it, it's uh, civil rights for um, athletes of color, um, whether it's economic disparity, these are, these are going to be coming through. And so you're going to be seeing athletes, um, and athletes are very creative in how they decide to make the Olympics political, but no doubt we're going to see these elements coming to the fore. But for, you know, from an international perspective, we're going to see athletes from other countries making protests about causes that we're, we might be largely unaware of. I would not be surprised to see statements about what's happening to Uyghur populations in China um, coming to the fore, especially because Beijing is looking to host the Winter Olympics in 2018. Um, so yeah, many of the international issues, many of the human rights issues around the world I would not be surprised to see athletes making political statements uh, in support or solidarity with with important causes that may be local um, for them, but they use the stage to make an international statement or to raise awareness. 
Right. So you uh, raise as a point of comparison the 1968 uh, Olympics with uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, which I remember watching as a a confused nine-year-old kid. Um, And so it sounds like it really is the case that this is quite new in maybe an international sport, but certainly I think in the United States in sports. So maybe you could talk about a little bit about um, you know, what's new, why is this happening now? Um, and you know, who likes it and who sort of, who does it turn off? I mean, I think there are some people who really just kind of don't want sport, uh, politics in their sports, you know? So maybe you could say a little bit about why this is happening now and how people are reacting to it. Yeah, I think, I would actually probably disagree a little bit on it being new. And I would, I would actually go the other direction and argue that it, it, we have a a far longer history of, of, of the Olympic games in particular being a source of political protest. Um, But, you know, so I made the comparison with, with um, 1968 specifically regarding race and black rights. Um, But if we look back again, throughout, the Olympic Games, we've seen athletes uh, making political statement about national identity. Um, we've seen one of the more famous issues came up in 1936 with the Olympic Games being held in Nazi Germany um, and the question whether or not uh, countries would draw. Typically, countries would lower their flag as they would pass the head of state. And the question of will we dip the flag in front of Hitler? Um, th- many of these kinds of, of political issues have come up over the years um, in different ways. Uh, Soviet satellite states um, opposing um, the, the USSR during um, the Cold War. One of the most famous water polo matches involving Hungary and, and the Soviet Union. They talk about the, bl- the water turning red because it, it basically became a proxy war for um, Soviet's invasion of Hungary. Uh, so I, I think what, what's, what we've seen is, is that athletes cannot help but bring with them the political baggage um, that, they, that they have in, 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 their, in their home life and then finding that platform um, to express themselves. Now, you know, there's been, there's been other ways that this has come out um, through history. And, and, and the, the International Olympic Committee does not like athletes using the games for political protests and, and and it finds itself in a very difficult situation because on the one hand part of the olympic brand is that it is this force for human rights it is this um uplifting ennobling spirit that sees equality in the human condition it just doesn't want athletes reminding people about it when they're on the the, the medal stand and it, it, it's a it's a um some might say a fine balance. Others might say a hypocritical situation where they they want to be uh, on the right side of politics. They just don't want to be taking any stands. If um, so, so this has put the IOC in very difficult positions. I can tell you that it's highly likely um, the IOC has issued very specific instructions to all of the different national Olympic committees such as the United States Olympic Committee, about what it will allow and what it will not allow in terms of athletes um, and, and protests. So I wouldn't be surprised if it allows athletes to, for example, wear something that might 
show support for LGBTQ, like a, a rainbow emblem. But um, if it becomes an, an overt statement on the metal stand, for example, um, or, or if it's if it becomes um, uh, something that that uh, interrupts the performances, you will see athletes like what happened to Smith and Carlos removed from the Olympic Games. Um, it'll it'll be it'll be very interesting these questions around, for example, whether athletes will take a knee during anthems. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they allowed an a- athletes to take knees at the start of a match. But if athletes were to say take a knee on the medal stand, it might be a different reaction. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't um, communiques going around with the different National Olympic committees to sort of tell athletes, here's where you're allowed to push the boundary, but here's where we're going to draw the line in terms of these political protests. So, I mean, this gets at uh, a certain issue that may be a particularly American concern, and that has to do with this question of the amateur status of the athletes. And there's just been a decision, and I guess there's another one coming around the freedom of, you know, college football players, basketball players to, you know, essentially commercialize their image, like name, image, and likeness. And, uh, you know, this seems like it's going to open the door and, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, opinion, dissent or, or uh, concurring opinion, I guess, um, you know, basically said these people are, you know, not paid market value for their work. And so you get the sense that the Supreme Court really wants to open the door to these to these athletes who do bring in enormous amounts of money to, you know, lots of universities in the U.S., uh, to sort of make them into professionals in effect. Um, but that would presumably, I mean, it may not matter in football, but, uh, you know, it would undermine their amateur status for purposes of the Olympics. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, the developments in American, in the status of American, whatever, semi-pro athletes, amateur athletes, and how this affects the Olympic Games. Because I would guess, you know, in the end, not very many countries in the world actually have, you know, professional sports of any real significance, that it's primarily a problem or an issue of the United States and, you know, a number of European countries, but not much beyond that. So the, the United or the Olympic Games has not required amateur status uh, since 1988 and by 1992, it, it had been completely removed. The requirement to be that old Victorian ideal of, you know, an, an unpaid uh, advocate for their sport. Um, so what what has happened with the Olympic Games is they, they'll allow athletes to be paid. So LeBron can be an Olympian if, if LeBron wants. Serena Williams can go to the Olympics with her million dollar Nike endorsement. Um, but the, the International Olympic Committee has put very strict regards around the commercialism. So what brands or, or the size of the logo. So if, if you'll notice, actually, in the Olympics, the, they limit the size of the logos um, and they don't allow any sort of um, advertisement on a player's uniform. And the logos are actually smaller than you might typically see at other times. So the Nike swoosh might be a little bit smaller, the Adidas emblem a little bit smaller, and you won't see a visa splashed across the the front of the the U.S. jerseys. You won't see Coca-Cola on on the arm patch of of the basketball team or the soccer team. So they've really tried to limit the commercial side of it 
while a lot saying to the athletes, essentially, we don't care what you're making outside of the Olympics, but when you come here, just come here to play what with the financial arrangement that you're, you know, whether a gold medal is going to get you another you know million dollars from Chevy, we're not going to worry about that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the NCAA doesn't take a page out of the Olympic Games and how the Olympic Games unwound its amateur policies while still retaining some of its core values. And I think that's been the secret sauce in the Olympic brand is that, well, yes, it's about great sport. There's the heartwarming side of things. There's the, the, the idea that athletes are there for the love of the game, not, not to promote their corporate sponsors that it's not like a professional sporting event where you've got billboards and, and flashing lights and you know these kinds of, of commercial endeavors. I think that I could see the NCAA following along with what the IOC has said, which is to say what you do outside of the student-athlete arrangement is not our concern, but when you're here, you're wearing our uniform, you're you know, behaving in this way, um, here's the size of the Nike swoosh you can have on your running shoes that you wouldn't see some of these, these kinds of policies emerge as the NCAA tries to figure out how do we stay true to our idea that we're somehow a mission driven enterprise that's supporting athletes while, while allowing for athletes to capitalize on names, images, and likenesses. Interesting. Obviously, I've forgotten about, you know, the dream team that went played in Barcelona with Michael Jordan's image, you know, plastered across a six story building when he was arguably the most famous person on the planet. Um, so in any case, um, you know, what should viewers, fans be looking for and watching uh, and who should they be watching and, and looking out for? And I'm sort of curious about a couple of sports in particular. Uh, that I have a more than a passing interest in, namely ultimate frisbee and surfing. So surfing, I think, is now for the first time going to be part of this competition. Is that right? I, I, yes. And um, it, 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 what's really interesting, you, you raised several questions, is, is the changing of the Olympic program to include these new sports. And, you know, with the inclusion of sports like surfing or competitive rock climbing, we're seeing um, what, what's been sort of a growing trend. And this goes back to the, the, the influence of financial revenue on the International Olympic Committee uh, and the Olympic Games, the Olympic movement, to bring these new sports in that will appeal to a younger demographic. There's no dispute that the Olympic Games has a demographic problem. And it's and it's struggling to appeal to the X Games millennial iGen uh, generation uh, uh, that have grown up with sort of different sports, and so there's a, there's a desire to bring in skateboarding into the LA Olympics uh, as well as the, these other alternative sports that are going to capture uh, viewers eyeballs, advertising dollars that are not necessarily drawn to track and field or fencing or badminton. So there is certainly an effort by the IOC to incorporate in um, some of these newer emerging sports that might have large viewership numbers. Uh, so, so this has opened the door to questions about would ultimate become a sport? Ult I, I love ultimate. Uh, I, I 
one of the issues that Ultimate has is around whether it's going to stay true to its self-officiating model and, and how does it want to sort of conform, if you will, a sport that's, that's sort of known for being its own having its own ethos. So, so ultimate as a community has this, this balance of staying true to its own identity or sort of joining with other international sports and just being one of, one of many team sports. But this is also where you see the rising debate on whether esports will become part of the Olympic movement. The esports question is probably the billion dollar question for the IOC should video should people be winning gold medals for playing video games and this is currently a debate that the IOC is having with itself and with um, the video game companies whether esports will become part of the olympic program uh, there's some issues around around the this conversation esports being uh, sometimes involving violence uh, the Olympic Games has said that's a non-starter. We don't want um, violent video games being in the Olympic program. However, these are the largest platforms in which most esports competitors are playing. Um, also, there's a very interesting dilemma where esports seem to be doing very well, both as an industry and in terms of its viewership, without the Olympic Games. Uh, I've heard it described to me by uh, an executive in the esports industry that we don't need them, but they need us. And so there's certainly an ambivalence by like EA Sports, the makers of, of FIFA soccer or Madden um, of football, whether or not they really need to join the Olympic movement because they're doing quite all right on their own. It's the Olympics that wants to bring in the esport gamer demographic into the Olympic movement. So the Olympic, the Olympic program, which has always been in flux, it's never been the same. It's, it's, it's never been two Olympics have the exact same sports in them. There's always evolution in the Olympic program. So we're seeing, again, that ongoing evolution in the Olympic program with the, with the inclusion of surfing, rock climbing, but also the questions about these new sports and whether we bring them in. Um, the, one of the major issues around the program is the size of the Olympic Games. There's a lot of concern that the Olympic Games is getting too big, both from a venue standpoint and the cost of building the venues, but also from a housing and a logistics standpoint. The number of athletes at the Olympic Games has been capped for the last 20 years. And so with the idea of anything new coming in, it's what is going to go out and what's going to get dropped. And, and the IOC has tried to balance that historic continuity of traditional sports with the inclusion of new sports. But there was a lot of, of backlash, especially when um, wrestling was potentially going to be dropped from the Olympic program. How could you drop wrestling? Wrestling goes back to ancient Greece, yet wrestling doesn't have a big audience. Um, it, only a handful of countries still really care about wrestling, primarily Central European countries. And uh, wrestling has had a historically doping issues, performance-enhancing drugs and steroids in sports. So these tensions are definitely going to play out as they think about what new sports to bring into the program um, and within what sports will they want to take out of the program. Interesting. So, I mean, you used the term at one point, the Olympic movement. 
And I wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, more about what that means. I mean, obviously when we were talking about amateur status and that sort of thing, that was a key component of it, but that's obviously sort of come and gone. I mean, in what sense is it, it's still a movement that seeks, you know, broader political goals, perhaps, you know, of, of unity or comity, you know, among nations and, and that sort of thing. I mean, is that sort of notion of a movement, is that really still alive? Well, for the people uh, in the International Olympic Committee, uh, and, and I think to a, to a large degree, yes, the Olympics, going back to its founding, has seen itself as being more than just about determining who is the best in their sport. That there is a progressive notion of human rights and self-improvement, but also egalitarianism and equality and pacifism, countries, athletes from the world coming together in harmony to compete, to understand each other's cultures, to become friends. So there certainly is a, a, there's, there's always been a view that the Olympic Games has a has sort of a movement or an ideology behind it. And this ideology will sometimes be called Olympism, this this notion of how to behave in international sport or what international sport can do to improving the human condition. And where we really do see the IOC living up to this standard is in its its demands, its expectation around gender equality and a, you know, requiring now every country to send at least one female athlete to the games and saying, really, you can't be involved in the Olympic movement if you're not showing some level of respect for genders. But similarly, the inclusion of diverse peoples, peoples of color, um, peoples from different continents, different socioeconomic status, the, the Olympic Games has really tried to say this is that sport is for all and they want the Olympics to reflect that. Now, that's not to say the economic inequalities, the political realities come through. As George Orwell famously said, you know, sports is, is war minus the shooting. Um, that, that there's, there's ways in which the, the inequalities and differences come to manifest itself. But the Olympics as a, as a, as a, um, a brand, as an entity, as a, as a corporation and organization, does really try to identify these areas of human rights and live up to them or, or ask its athletes to live up to them in, in various ways to the best of its abilities. So, you know, I, I think the, the idea of the, of the Olympics as a true religion, no, I don't think anyone be- believes that, but I think there are a lot of people who do see the Olympic Games as a force for good, that the world is a better place politically, uh, in terms of uh, peace, harmony, free trade, exchange of ideas, because we have a sporting environment where athletes come together, live together in a village, um, come to understand each other, and and do for a moment emphasize values beyond simply getting the W, being the best, getting a gold medal, and then cashing in on that. So we can be cynical and debate to what degree is the Olympics really living up to its own ideals. But I think there are a lot of people that do try to look at the Olympic Games and, 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 and 
the Olympic Games does fulfill their vision that it's about more than sport and that there are certain principles underlying the Olympics that, for example, separates it from an ordinary world championship or a world cup or something along those lines, that there's more going on than just sport. Great. Well, that's a fascinating overview of the status of the Olympic movement uh, as it exists today. Uh, I want to thank John Leaves for his insights about the past and future of the Olympic Games. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Voinoff for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks again, John Bleeds. Thank you. Thank you.